Isaiah chapter 9. The Old Testament book of Kings records the uh, tumultuous history of the various monarchies of Israel, both in the northern and the southern kingdom. And just to put this in a timeline perspective for you, uh, we really left off with David as we've worked through a lot of Israel's history this year. Uh, David had his son Solomon, and Solomon reigned over Israel, uh, built a temple in Jerusalem, and then his son Rehoboam took over after Solomon died, and Rehoboam was not so wise in his decision-making. And as a result, the kingdom divided in two. You had the northern kingdom who created their own monarchy. You had the southern kingdom that was there in the south. And uh, these kingdoms, and we work through the book of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. You work through the variety of the different kings. But in 2 Kings 16, we're introduced to a 20-year-old king whose actions are described as nothing less than an abomination to the Lord, an abomination. The king is Ahaz. We briefly introduced him last week, talked about him a little bit, but his reign is filled with war, deception, distress. And the scripture uses another term to describe the era of Ahaz, and it's this word, it's darkness. It was dark days for Israel. You can read more about him in 2 Kings 16 if you'd like, 2 Chronicles 28. But during the reign of Ahaz, Isaiah is the prophet who is speaking on behalf of the Lord, and Isaiah has much to say to him. And so in Isaiah chapter 7, which we're not going to read 7 and 8, but in Isaiah chapter 7, it opens with Isaiah meeting Ahaz and pronouncing that judgment is coming because of Ahaz's disobedience and the people of Israel. And then midway through Isaiah chapter 7, beginning of verse 10, the Lord gives Ahaz a sign. This is the section we talked about last week. Remember Ahaz uh, had the, the Syrians and the northern kingdom uh, plotting against him, and so he tried to hire out the Assyrians to help him. And so he's trying to get this work around. He doesn't want to go to Yahweh for help. And so when Isaiah comes and says, hey, do you want a sign? He says, I don't want to hear from Yahweh. But he says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. A virgin will conceive and bring forth a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. And you remember that particular promise, that prophecy that we so cherish this time of year particularly, uh, it, was, it was a prophecy just related to the fact that Yahweh is saying, I'm not done with you, Israel. I will continue to keep the promise that I made to Abraham and to David. I will continue to be faithful to you. Well, then we move into chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 8. Assyria is coming, and Ahaz, your schemes will not work, is the word that Isaiah gives to him. And then in chapter 11, or verses 11 through 22 of chapter 8, with Assyria will come, and here's the promises that Isaiah makes. There will be hunger, there will be distress, and there will be darkness. Look at the, look at the very last verse of chapter 8 with me. So Isaiah chapter 8, very last verse, verse 22, and they will look to the earth. That is, Israel will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Thick darkness. Author and teacher Tim Keller, he writes this. He says, in the Bible, the word darkness refers both to evil and to ignorance. It means first that the world is filled with evil and untold suffering. Look at what's happening during the time of the birth of Jesus. There's violence. 
great violence. There is injustice. There is abuse of power. There is homelessness. There are refugees who are fleeing oppression, families that are being ripped apart. And if you're thinking that was during the time of the birth of Jesus, that sounds an awful lot like today, too. All of these things we still deal with. In fact, some of you in this very room are suffering as a result of this dark, broken, fallen world. Cancer is dark, isn't it? Grief. Grief and the pain that we can experience is dark. The depression and anxiety that we often feel is dark. Broken relationships is dark. The hurt that other people uh, can cause us uh, because of their unfaithfulness, because of their untruth, it hurts, and it leads to darkness. Oftentimes, as we mentioned last week, those, those difficulties, that darkness can be heightened this time of year because we see so many other people uh, experiencing so much joy, and then we're left wondering, well, well, where's, where's my joy? That contrast can be very difficult. Keller continues and says this, the other way our world is in the dark is that no one knows enough to cure the evil. In other words, no one knows how to fix this. At the conclusion of Isaiah 8, we learn that the people are thrust into this, this thick darkness because they're seeking understanding from the mediums and from the magicians of their day. What's going on here? Well, it says in the text that they look to the earth. They're looking to, to humans to try to fix the problems. They're looking to humans to try to create something that will fix the situation that they find themselves in. So they're looking to their experts. They're looking to their mystics, their scholars for solutions. Uh, they agree and they would say, yes, we're in the darkness. Yes, this is a difficult time, but we can find a way out. We can resolve this ourselves. And people make the same claim today, don't they? People try to dig themselves out of the holes that they find themselves in. Some today look to the government to try to fix the problems that exist in our culture, in our cultures some people look to the markets and the economy and say, if we only had a better economy, if only finances were better, then, then we could find solutions for the problems that we find ourselves in. Some people look to technology and think that, well, we're just not quite there yet, but once we get there, then that will fix the problem. Or they look to a, a new relationship, another relationship, and say, I think this is the one that will help resolve the problems in my life. All of them share the identical assumption that this, that yes, we're in darkness, but we can overcome the darkness with our intellect. We can overcome the darkness with our innovation. But the reality is when we try to solve the problem of darkness, we only make it worse. And that's how this chapter concludes. They make it worse. They're in the dark, but then they're thrust into deeper darkness because they're trying to bring resolve. It's like when I try to wrap a Christmas present. I only make it worse. I thought the other day, I was like, praise God that God gave me a daughter uh, because I used to wrap my wife's Christmas presents and they probably looked better in the box they came in. But now my daughter can wrap those Christmas presents and it's a glorious thing. But that's what happens when we get involved, when we try to find solutions. Ah, oh, we only muddle it more. One of the most beautiful signs that Christmas season is upon us 
It's the lights, at least for me. I love the lights, the, the beauty of the lights. I would, I would have one of those Clark Griswold Christmas homes if I could and have lights every which part of my house, but uh, faith does limit me a little bit in that every year. But I remember as a kid, Every year this memory comes back to my mind, begging my mom to drive down 6th Street in Oak Mulgee. That was the town kind of closest to where we lived. And uh, because on 6th Street there was this beautiful two-story brick house and they always had lights. And that was kind of a rare thing back in the day. There wasn't a lot of Christmas lights on people's houses. They even had like a, a Santa and reindeer on top of the roof. And I'd be like, slow down, mom. I really want to soak this in because I just loved looking at the lights that we get to enjoy this time of year. But the history of lights and the relationship to Christmas, it goes further back than the invention of electricity. It goes further back than uh, the use of Advent candles in church history. It even goes further back than uh, the star that appeared to guide shepherds and the magi to where Jesus was. The connection between lights and Christmas goes back to Isaiah chapter 8. But more specifically, it goes back to Isaiah chapter 9. And that's the text I want to look at with you for the next few moments we had together this morning. Isaiah chapter 9. Again, if you're using a pew Bible, it's 536. In the same context, here's what Isaiah says. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, referring to the invasion of the north. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I want to pause for just a moment of prayer before we dig into this text today. Father, God, I just beg you to work. Lord, I have no doubt that, that there are many in this room who are wandering in the darkness. Their own sin, the sin of others, has them anxious, struggling, depressed, but whatever word we would put on it. Many are already anxious and stressed over what's about to come, the gauntlet of celebrations and times together with family. 
And I pray today that, Lord, your spirit would work in such a way that we would recapture the hope that we have in Jesus. That we would truly see the light in the midst of our darkness. And so, Father, I just pray your blessing as we continue thinking through these truths and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 9 begins with the word but. And that is meant to, to contrast everything that Isaiah has just recorded. That's why we went through all that history of 7 and 8 and this deep darkness that they found themselves in. And he says, opening up, yes, Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, they suffered greatly. And again, that's because of the Assyrians' invasion. But then he says, but. And he says, yes, the people were thrust into this deeper darkness. And then he says, but. And aren't you grateful that we find that contrast so often in Scripture. And we found that this year, that they, they, they messed up again. Israel, they forsook the Lord again. But God raised up a deliverer. He raised up a judge. But God came through once again. Notice verse 2, what that but leads to. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. Those are some hope-filled verses. Not just for Israel in their situation, but for us in our situation. In the darkness we often find ourselves in, light has come, light has shown, and because of it, we have hope. In the Scriptures, light is equated with the presence of God. 1 John 1, verse 5 says this, this is the message that we declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness. I love what the psalmist does in 139. He, he talks about uh, the light of, of God, and he says that even the darkness looks like light in relation to this God whom we serve. And so these words, this light, was a sign that God was not completely done with his people. Again, a sign that God had not abandoned his people. He would not abandon the covenant. He would not abandon the promises that he made. And with the light would come blessing upon blessing and grace upon grace. And that's what verses 3 through 5 describe for us. You've multiplied the nations. You've increased its joy, he writes. They rejoice before you as with the joy of a harvest uh, or, or those who gladly divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor. You've broken as in the days of Midian, hearkening back to Gideon. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled by blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. With the light comes the abundance of joy rejoicing in the Lord. And Isaiah gives us two illustrations to help us understand just the, the measure of the joy that we experience with the light. And the first one, he says, is when you get that, that bountiful harvest, when you, you planted the seed and you get back more than you anticipated getting. So I thought through that this week. I thought about the first time I went to Aldi. How many of you are Aldi shoppers? Yeah. I remember the first time I went with my wife and we filled up that cart and we got up there, and it was under $100. That's, that's the spirits of joy. I was like, you got to be kidding me. This would have been $300 at Walmart. That's what he's talking about, this abundance of joy that you feel. Or he says, for the soldiers and the warriors, when you go to do battle, and you completely spoil the enemy, take everything they have, that's the measure of joy. 
that we experience when the light comes. In verse 4, he speaks of their freedom, but then in verse 5, he describes something that, that, that we all desperately want. But every time we try to get it and try to attain it ourselves, we end up getting pretty frustrated. He uses the word. Here's what we want. We want shalom. We want peace. That's what we all long for. And he says it comes with the light. He says there will be no more need for the soldier's boots or the bloody garments. They'll be, bu- they'll be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? Because the lights come and the light brings peace. There's no, there's no more war. Uh, there's no more treatment of injustice of other people. Last night we were uh, in our home watching this, this concert. It was kind of a thing that was recorded live. And uh, before it, it was sponsored by a group called Love Justice. And they had two commercial blurbs about what they're doing to combat against human trafficking. And I thought, God, help us. Jesus, come quickly so we can get rid of these travesties that exist in our present dark world. Human trafficking of little girls. With the light comes peace. Peace even to the conflicts you have in your own family. Some of you are going to face that this week. Some of you are going to be in the same room with people that you don't get along with very well. The light brings peace to those circumstances. Some of you uh, feel that conflict in yourself. He brings peace. It's been remarkable to me. Uh, I've been working UPS again this holiday season. Me and Michael are UPS buds. And uh, one of the things that I've really noted Um, as I've been driving rurally and delivering some of these things, is just how unwelcoming we are as a culture anymore. They expect a big UPS truck to pull up, but when I pull up in a van, they're they're on guard. I see so many signs that say, no soliciting, no, no politics, no religion, none of this stuff on people's houses, and they're basically just saying, we don't want you here if we don't know you. Or the ones that say, no trespassing. You'll be shot. Survivors will be shot again. And I think, goodness gracious, our culture's changed so much. We're so unwelcoming of other people. We need peace. So how is this going to happen? How is God going to do this miraculous thing? Through a person. Notice the identity of the light, verses 6 And verse 7, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. My wife over the last few years has been doing paintings like these of Christmas-related verses, incarnation-related verses, and I noticed that we didn't have one of Isaiah 9, and I thought I, I would like for her to do one of Isaiah 9. And so she, she kind of wrote it out, and I was supposed to proof it, and I looked at it as I do, and, oh, yeah, that looks great. And she wrote it out, and then when I was reading what she had painted, she had painted this. Uh, let, me, let me read it so I don't mess it up. The people who walked in darkness have seen great light. And I, I thought, I was like, wait, I think it's the people who have seen 
a great light. And so we looked again, and yeah, we were missing that little article. And I was thinking through that in that moment, how significant that one article is. It's not just that a great light, it's a great light. It's a person. And she miraculously fixed it so you wouldn't even know that there was an A missing. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. We got to think back to Isaiah 7 and what we talked about last week, that first sign that was given to Ahaz that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son and you'll call his name Emmanuel. Why would God send a child though? Why wouldn't he come in his, his divine authority? Why wouldn't he come as a warrior? And last week we covered one answer to that, and that's he had to come as a human. He had to be born as a human so he could represent humanity in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. The second reason is one that I found in one of the authors I was reading, and I love this line. He says this, God is strong enough to overcome his enemies by becoming vulnerable, transparent, and humble. God is strong enough to overcome his enemies by becoming vulnerable, transparent, and humble. And that's what we recognize in the birth of Jesus, the humility, the humility of the divine. Others suppose a third reason Ahaz wouldn't fear a child a child can't upend my kingdom. A child can't overthrow me. But Isaiah then uses four phrases to describe this child that will hold the government on his shoulders. First he says he is the wonderful counselor. In other words, his counsel and his wisdom uh, will be greater than any of humanity. Ahaz had been seeking the counsel of all sorts of other people. He'd been trying to figure out, how am I going to get myself out of this mess that I've created? But he wouldn't go to Yahweh for counsel. He wouldn't ask of Isaiah for counsel. But the wonderful counselor will come. The one who is a miraculous planner. He also says that he will be the mighty God. This is a statement that this child who will be born will be divine. He will be God himself. He will be the everlasting father. Father here describing the one who leads, the one who shepherds, the one who protects his people. And he will be the prince of peace. He will bring peace. He will be able to reconcile men to men. He will be able to reconcile men to their creator God. Fixing what Adam broke in the garden and his reign will never end he will rule on the throne of David there's our connection again to David he will rule in righteousness and justice and I love this line God's zeal will bring this about God's zeal will bring this about. In other words, this will not happen according to the, the normal, ordinary course of human affairs. God is going to intervene in a miraculous way. God will do the miraculous, and that's what we celebrate, God's miraculous intervention into our darkness in the birth of Christ. God is zealous to fulfill everything that he's ever promised to his people. 
and he will keep his promises. This year has been a testament to that as we've looked after story after story, generation after generation of Israel's history. They failed to keep their end of the covenant. God never failed to keep his. And even as Jordan read to us this morning, there is nothing that will separate us from his love. No matter how many boneheaded and dumb things you do, you're not gonna change his love for you. It is the steady, it is the consistent in our life. This one that Isaiah describes is the Messiah. This one that Isaiah describes who would be born of a virgin is the Christ, he's the King of kings, he's the Lord of lords, he's the Savior of the world. I want you to turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John in the New Testament. If you're using a pew Bible, you can just go to 833. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that, that Matthew and Luke really record the the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. John takes some more theological approach to the birth of Christ. And I want you to see what he says as he opens his gospel. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and notice this, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man who was sent from God whose name was John, speaking of John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that he might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says the light has come. And the darkness has not overcome this light. There would be an argument that would take place during Jesus' ministry, many arguments that took place during Jesus' ministry. But in one particular argument, his response to the religious leaders was this, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light. The people who walked in great darkness have seen a light. His name is Jesus. The wonderful counselor is Jesus. The mighty God is Jesus. The everlasting Father it's Jesus.
and the Prince of Peace who's come is Jesus. For those of you who are walking in darkness today, maybe it's of your own making, maybe it's not. This world is a dark place. My encouragement to you today is to look to Jesus. Look to the light. Stop looking to yourself to try to bring resolve to the problem. You're only going to thrust yourself into deeper darkness. Stop looking to other people to try to resolve the problem. You're only going to make it worse as you thrust yourself into deeper darkness. Look to Jesus. Where do we find him? Right here in the pages of this book that the psalmist actually describes as what? A lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We find the light in the truths of Scripture. Jesus said it this way as well. He said, in the world, you'll find trouble. You could maybe just replace that with darkness. But I've overcome the world. Look to him today. What will you do with the great light that has come? Will you reject him? Will you push him away? Will you let him expose you? That's what the light does, isn't it? That's why we, we fear it sometimes, because the light shows us our inadequacies. The light shows us that we're not good enough, that we need something more. We need him. We need salvation. Will you let the light guide you? Will you let it be Lord of your life? It's easy to think of Jesus as that baby even Ahaz, babies aren't scary. But he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Will you let him be your everlasting father and guide you through this life, living in obedience to him? And finally, I would just ask it this way, will you share the light with other people? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you're the city that's set on a hill. It's not meant to be hidden. It's not meant to be a candle that's put under a bushel, but you're to be the light that others would see so that they may glorify our Father in heaven. Will you let that light shine? You're going to have opportunities this week. You're going to have conversations with people that are in your family. You're going to have opportunities to show love in a moment where everything about you wants to show anger and frustration. You're going to have opportunities to be the light and let the light shine through you. And then you'll have an opportunity to share with people why. How is this possible? How can this miracle be? <laughs> because Christ has come. So this Christmas, when you look at the lights and their beauty, marvel at that. But let it be a reminder, every glowing bulb, every burning candle, that they're representations of the true light that's come and the beauty that is Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you.